I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast. The Two Enthusiast Podcast. iTunes is only gluten-free motorcycle show. <laughs> nah, nah. We should probably talk about motorcycles. Yeah, I think we should. So did you happen to see that um, one of our favorite companies in the industry is no longer? Kaput? It's, it's very kaput. <laughs> yeah, I did see that. I saw it coming. As yeah, you did. Yeah. 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 For months. Uh, of if course, not years. We're talking about Scully, the uh, augmented reality. I don't even know if you can really say it's augmented reality. Yeah, that's not augmented reality. It's, uh, that, but that was the pitch. They're, they're a helmet company that heads up display and rear facing camera based out of San Francisco. And for the last two, three, two, three years now, it's been a while. It's been a while. They've been trying to get this helmet to market and couldn't, despite raising $15 million and having one of the most popular Indiegogo campaigns ever. $15 million. So we actually talked about Scully. We've actually talked about this very issue on two podcasts ago. We ended up deleting it because almost immediately after we finished the show, uh, I think it was the very next day, the, the company basically went under. And, yeah. and it's been a bit of an interesting thing. So they recently got rid of their CEO, Marcus Weller, and his brother, Mitch, who was kind of the chief of staff, I think would be the best way to describe him. I think he was a managing director of some sorts, but titles being kind of nebulous. They exited the company a few weeks ago, and then almost immediately news came out that it was going to close its doors instead of trying to revamp things. And I think that was largely due to just the fact that Internally, they were a bit of a mess. They needed a lot of money to recapitalize and, and to get production flowing. And obviously, there was tremendous bad blood in the industry and, and with the consumers that have paid a lot of money for these helmets and paid a lot of money up front for these helmets, only to see delay after delay after delay. And quite frankly, the company was a bit disingenuous about, I would say... Some everything? Of the, <laughs> everything, yeah. That's probably the best way to describe well, it. Well, the main everything. thing was like, you, you had brought up the... Uh, Oh, well, these are helmets are very awesome helmets and they're very protective and they're special, but they really weren't. They were just. No, they were, they were $50 helmets made in China by a company called MHR, which also makes LS2. LS2 is a, Do they make built? They make a lot of brands. LS2 is a brand they own, but my understanding is MHR is the helmet, the Chinese helmet manufacturer that a lot of other companies use. I, yeah, but it could have at some point. At some point. There's, a, there's a possibility. It's that one of those things point, like, yeah. yeah, white label kind of thing where they're building the helmets for other brands. White label? That's a term for... That's an apparel term, fashion industry term. But it's the same thing like if you see Ducati leathers, they're made by Dainese. Sure. Uh, BMW. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily call that white label though. They co-brand. Sometimes what, they co-brand. Sometimes sure. they don't. Like like all the BM, like BMW doesn't make any of its helmets. They don't, they don't have a helmet manufacturing plant and they are made, a lot of them are made actually by AGV and then labeled or Shoeberth. Shoeberth, yeah. Well, AGV makes some, but really? Shoeberth does oh, as well. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Well, that's the thing. You don't, you don't know it because it's just branded as a BMW helmet, but that would be a yeah, white label. But, but bottom line is they were trying to pass it off as something new and interesting and different, but the helmet was just kind of uh, bare bones, bottom of the barrel style or not bottom, but not, well, not yeah, fantastic. Mean, it was a polycarbonate sh- um shell which is pretty old technology like to, to be to be blunt about it i mean that's what we were making helmets out of in the late 90s and they're they're big and they're heavy and they're they're hard now we make helmets out of composites 
Uh, we use either fiberglass or carbon, carbon Kevlar blend, carbon fiberglass blend with different layers. I mean, there's lots of ways you can kind of divvy that up. So, um, you know, kind of kind of an antiquated shell design, very cheap to make. And then, you know, you turn around, you put basically a cell phone's worth of electronics into it and jack the price up to fifteen hundred bucks. The thing I will say for Scully is I, I like the idea. I, I hope um, I hope that spurs at least enough movement in the industry that another helmet brand will look at what they're offering and be like, hey, you know, this is really the next evolution. Because I think that's what got people excited about it. And I think that's what got, you know, I've heard numbers as high as 3,000 people, you know, have orders out there. Plocking down, you know, 1500 bucks a pop, start doing the math on that. That's $4.5 million. Wow. Um, so, you know, is that the, an addition to the 15 million they no, raised? No, 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 no. That's part of it because this is the kicker. The Indiegogo, if you look at Indiegogo, which is one of these crowdfunding kind of websites, if you look at the terms of service, you're not buying something from them. You're investing. You're investing in a company and you get a promise of a reward for your investment. So, the, you know, I think there's about 2,000 helmets ordered through Indiegogo. I think it was about 1,500 people, 2,000 helmets, because there was like a two-for-one deal they had as well. All those people have like zero recourse as, as far as getting their helmet back. They were investing in Scully, and they have really no rights to getting anything in return. It's kind of up to Scully to do that. Now, obviously, with Scully being out of business, and I should say, the last I heard from the company, they were trying to raise an emergency round of funding to, to keep the lights on and, and to get everyone back, but people have already been terminated and let go for some reason the website's still going on for some reason for a while there the they were whoever the pr agency was was still on facebook hmm. like replying to people and be like your order's gonna be out soon i just saw it go out the door and you're like you guys are definitely out of business right like you're just yeah you're some pr person like austin texas or whatever who's getting paid 15 dollars an hour to run a company's facebook site no one gave you the memo of what's going yeah. on sad it's sad and it's unfortunate and it's misleading. And I think that's that's really what's going to do do it in because as much as I like the idea, uh, obviously the team around it, the, the management team, the executive team was not up to the task. But I think this is something that the space needed in a way because let's be honest, when was the last time you saw an innovative helmet design? Something that was actually different. We've, we've been building basically the same helmets for decades now just decades longer than i've been alive even it's still that same idea of a rigid shell with some sort of foam liner and you know we've come up with different materials in those in those regards we've gone from polycarbonates to to composites we've gone from different types of eps liners that have different this is not a technical term but squishiness uh how well they they absorb energy at varying velocities and now we have multi-layered eps's and we have different kind of kind of technologies that revolve around that like 6d has a very interesting design where it's kind of a double shell and it, it has um kind of like these little rubbers in between the two uh parts of the helmet that can absorb rotational inertia and provide more um cushioning on on low velocity impacts but really it's all kind of the same stuff and and we haven't seen a lot of evolution even though like you can easily go out into the marketplace and find a four digit helmet price you know bell's got one agv's got one schubert i mean pick a brand pick any major top tier brand and they probably have a thousand dollar helmet that they'll sell you and ultimately would any one of those helmets be that much different than the my 
My first helmet was a, well, my first helmet was an awful off-brand, something or other, cheap, right? Uh, even for 1993 standards, it was probably 60 bucks or something like that. Seriously, right? Central Texas, small shop. The first real helmet I had, which wasn't too long after that, was an RF200, which was a shoey. So You say shoey or shoey? I say shoey. I'm a shoey. I think you're right. I don't know. But I'm I don't, a, sh- a shoe-in with that. You're right? a shoe-in. I, I, I saw it coming. I was like, oh, hit the brakes. Pump the brakes, Jensen. It's a Japanese company. It's a right? Japanese company. So we should, is this is this a Wunderleek moment? We should figure out how to properly say shoey. No, I'm pretty confident it's shoey. Do we say A-Rai? Like Nicky Hayden, I want to get my A-Rai helmet. I don't think he says that. He well, must I think, say I think Nicky Hayden mispronounces a lot of words <laughs> not, because he's A-Rai. from Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, a showy, which I think you're right, showy. And it's, you know, that sh- whatever shell, who knows, probably polycarbonate, but it might have been better. Uh, she, uh, the screen is the same, the, the interior, the coverage. Yeah, I'm sure it's all looking at thinking about that helmet now. It's clunky and big. Um, I, I know I haven't seen one in a long time, but that's a big, clunky, gnarly helmet. And I really wanted an Arai so bad. But even thinking of the equivalent of Arai from that time. Um, yeah, the big and big and round are not as svelte. So yeah, you're right. I can see where your, your point is. There's not been, but really it's kind of a specialized thing. It's been, it had gotten iterated on until the late nineties, early two thousands. Right. And then once it, once all helmets got into a certain spot, where, where else are you going to go? It's a very specific thing. Like what do the formula one racers have? They have some interesting helmets that are a little different because they can fit into a car and they have to be aerodynamically sound. Um, but not, I mean, the shield systems have kind of weird no. attachments, but the, nothing serious, nothing hugely different. So there's one thing I want to say before we get too far down the rabbit hole, because I think it's really important. And it's this concept of, Oh, if you have a hundred dollar head, go buy a hundred dollar helmet, which is kind of a bullshit thing. And I just want to say, like, in, in my research on this and looking at, stra- at crash data and and running statistical analysis on it, there isn't a very strong correlation between price and safety. There's a very strong correlation between weight and safety. So it's very hard to make a light helmet safe. And, and that comes back to, I think, this idea of, like, the technology is kind of just the same. Like, sitting here and talking about composite shells versus polycarbonate shells, talking about different types of foam multi-density film and it's like well it's all kind of the same i mean you're kind of just splitting hairs on on the formula on whether it's snell or dot or ece and it's just like well you know are you going to impact test it at 15 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour and how does that change it doesn't need to have a pierce test or not and you know glancing blows as opposed to head-on blows as opposed to blows from behind blows from forward blows from top like you look at a bicycle helmet and they talk about the protection of a bicycle helmet and it literally would only protect if you took a hit from directly on top of your head, right? Yeah. And that's kind of like, what's, what's the point, right? Well, and I've definitely had that debate, that debate with some of my cycling friends um, because of this. And, and it's one of those things where when you pay more for a helmet, what you're really paying for is quality of materials. Yeah, sure. And you, it's notably different. And that's the thing, like, like I've got, you go down to my office downstairs and I've got probably 20 helmets uh, on the bookshelf on display and you can put on a, an Arai and put on, um, an HJC and see the difference in materials and see the difference in, in build quality. And, you know, 
what they look like 10,000 miles later or whatever. And, you know, the Arai costs probably four times as much and it's going to hold, it's, it's held up together a lot longer. Is the Arai safer than an HJC? You know, we don't really have good data in the marketplace for that, for me to be able to like really say, but, you know, everything I've seen is, you know, the differences that are out there are pretty minimal. Um, and, and, and in a real world application, are we like, this helmet's going to cause you brain trauma and you're going to be comatose for three weeks versus this helmet's going to be like, you're going to be fine. No, you're probably looking at like, that one's going to give you a concussion and that one's going to give you a concussion in the same crash because it's just, we're talking about. You, you can't do much when you only have an inch and a half to two inches of yeah. area around your head other than other, that really, because we, nobody wants a bigger, bulkier, gnarly helmet. It is what it is. Unless that helmet splits open on impact, it's going to more or less function the same as the helmet next to it. And I think that's that's probably why we have so much confusion in the marketplace because truthfully, helmets are probably to some extent a commodity. And and because of that, I think we've seen stagnation in helmet design where, you know, yeah, helmet companies come out with different things and they have some different features and maybe like this year's latch on the visor is better than last year's latch or the way the quick release for the visor works is a little different or the airflow has been improved or yeah. things like that or graphics even. But we haven't really seen the next evolution in this idea on how we protect our heads. And the one good thing, I think the only good thing that came from Scully was it was like, hey, guys, this is a space you can innovate in. You know, put Bluetooth speakers in, put the ability to have a heads up display, put a rear facing camera, like not quite sure if the marketplace needs these things, but maybe they want them. And maybe this is something if they were out there, that would lead to something else that would be even cooler. You know, we might not want them at all, but until we know that that's there, if you gave me a helmet that I could see behind me, I guess maybe I personally don't want all that. I, I, it's ever complication and, but I haven't tried it, right? I haven't. Yeah, what company was that that you put this weird little thing on the front of the helmet and it would heads up display on the screen for you, or it w- it would come down and in front of your face and it was kind of a. Well, there's a few. There's a few companies that make like kind of add-on units for yeah. the helmet, and and they're kind of big and they're bulky and they sit on the outside of the helmet. The big thing is, and I don't think people realize, uh, ECE standard. You cannot have any. Um, non-padded objects near the eye so the oculus on the scully helmet i'm not even like they claimed ece approval and like the certification was just arriving any day but it was one of those things from like how did you get that because it's very clear in the way the the regulations word and i even went and looked it up you cannot have a non-padded object anywhere near the face just period oh i would frankly i haven't even seen the mechanism but i assumed it was a projector coming from behind your eye onto the... St- no, 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 no. Oh, it was a little... Do you, have you, you seen Google Glass? Yeah. Or have you seen the... It would be Google Glass. Okay. Like the heads up that like sure. helicopter pilots yep. used? Totally. That's what we're talking about. It's like a little... Well, if a helicopter pilot can have it, why can't we? Did you ever seen the movie Firebirds? Hmm. Nicholas Cage. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. Tommy Lee Jones, maybe. Yeah, long time. Wow. It was like literally the army version of yeah. Top Gun. I think it came yeah. out like a year or two later. Yeah, uh, no, it was probably a lot later, but yeah. No, I think it was pretty close. I think I think like Top Gun came out and they were like, oh, we should do that. We should do that with helicopters. We should do that with Apache helicopters. Yeah, sure. That was my favorite movie when I was a kid. We should uh, revisit that. I bet that's, if it's got Tommy Lee Jones, Nick Cage is over acting is worth anything usually it's worth it just to see him try and drive like an army jeep 
using like one of those little kid periscopes yeah. that's been secured to his head with yeah. a female's underwear. Yep, I remember that. That's that's a standout scene. Mm-hmm. I think I watched that a couple of years ago and I was like, wow, this movie's horrible. I bet. But what an object lesson and how to deal with a strange visual, like, but to have a periscope. Well, see, that's actually the thing. Like, I actually have what his character has where I have a, a, a my right eye is dominant over my left to the point that my left eye doesn't really do a lot for me. Hmm. So I, I have like a kinship there. Ah, so you have a lack of depth perception. I do okay. Um, my depth perception is pretty good. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Mostly I just get headaches if I don't wear my glasses regularly. Ah. But every now and then I kind of stumble into something. But I think that's just me being clumsy. I think uh, I think we should watch Iron Eagle. Iron Oh, Iron Eagle. Way better than that, I'm which sure. Which is awesome, but also like Jeez. no way in the history of the universe that plot line ever is going to be true. Yeah, but it was right. It's like this like literally like this 16-year-old kid like just, oh, I'm just going to borrow this F-16 and go rescue my dad that's in like Iran and Chappie's going to help me. God, Chappie. And I got my little, oh, he's got the little tape deck the on tape his deck leg. was the thing. Oh, my right? God. just fucking slays me. <laughs> I think we're going to have to have a, a mid-80s. I, I don't know what you call those movies. They're almost like military mm-hmm. explo- exploitation movies. Just kind of like. They're propaganda films. Let's just yeah. be, let's be really, just really like Red Dawn. This is like. Let's get these Ruskies. <laughs> let's get everybody all riled up to fight them brown people and the Ruskies and whoever isn't like us. And now we're paying the price for that. Yeah, because like Top Gun was communists. Uh, Firebirds was South American drug cartel. Yeah, sure. And Iron Eagle, I think it was Iran- Iranians or Iraqi. Or, it whatever was one it of those. is, people that don't speak our language that might be a little bit browner than us, I'm yeah, sure. And they got oil. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. Sure. Now, I'm sure there's a little Rusky in there, too, like stale, well, little communist action. Yeah, it's probably, like a, it's probably like one of those puppet states that the Ruskies are controlling. Yeah, sure. I just watched Hunt for Red October. We could, we could just go down this rabbit hole all day. Oh, <laughs> we Hunt should, for we Red should. October is one of so my favorites. Good. So good. So deliciously good. That's I such a good movie. I love that everyone has a British accent in it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Give me one ping, one ping only. One ping only. <laughs> Up yours, Trebek. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, back, back from that fucking man, really got to apologize for that one that was like hole there that like, was dirty i want someone to come up with the two enthusiasts podcast rabbit hole drinking game <laughs> and by the way you'd be slushed right now you would just be donezo yeah <laughs> but, but so so back to helmets <laughs> anyways mrs mrs lincoln what do you think of the play <laughs> Um, I do think, I do think that the, the, the one good thing to come out of this is hopefully it wakes someone up. And in fact, we saw that BMW announced that it was going to come up with its own heads up helmet concept. So and, they'll and debut get, that. they'll get by the ECA somehow. Somebody will create something. Well, that was their, their thing was actually, it was the visor. I believe it was the visor itself. No, no, it had a little Oculus thing too. I don't know how they're doing it. I don't know how they're doing it. I'm going to be truthful. I don't have a clue how they're well, doing maybe it. Maybe somebody will be able to convince the ECA, hey, this is not a dangerous thing to have this in front it of you. kind of is, though. Whatever. It's right in front of your eye, Quentin. I don't know. So is the helmet, right? Yeah, so is but... the screen. So is the motorcycle. So is the stuff going by me at 160 miles an hour there's, in the front there's straight There's a away. big difference between that and the thing that's literally less than an inch away from your eyeball. I guess. Uh, in fact, there's actually there's there's test protocols about the the visor and being able to protect from objects coming into the sure the helmet shell and things like that but we gotta get off this topic so i'll just say 
rest in peace, Scully. We saw it coming a mile away. Yep. I mean, that's that's the tragedy. That's yep. the tragedy. I feel I feel bad for the people that spent their money on it, but I also have a little bit of like I don't care because you should have seen this coming because all the writing was on the wall. There's there's some people in the industry that were really all behind it, and I just look at them like like I felt like I was crazy. I felt like I was in like an Alfred Hitchcock movie where like. You were the only one that saw all of the bad things that were happening. Yeah, everybody else because was- it's just in there. I'm like, how do you not see that these people are just liar, liar, pants on fire? How do you see that like this is just all fluff and no substance? When when you have a pre-revenue startup that has like a dedicated, that has like more people on its PR team than it does like engineers and just <laughs> management, you got to like sit there and just wonder that maybe it's all bullshit. And lo and behold, it was. So I don't really feel that bad about it. I'm sure that ruffle some feathers but you know that's life that'll be just fine everybody will be just fine i know you're gonna be just fine you're cold-hearted yeah um newsy stuff other newsy stuff california probably by the time that this podcast comes out will have officially codified lane splitting literally just about an hour before we started recording the show quentin the california state assembly confirmed the amendments that the california state senate uh passed earlier in this week is the assembly kind of like, uh, like, be like so there's the Senate and the House? Yeah. So so the California Assembly is California's version of the United States House of Representatives. Okay. So the, by the time this comes out, so you're saying early 2017? You're a funny guy. Okay. You're a really funny guy. I love I love how passive aggressive you get on Facebook when like we have oh, a show good. like in the cooker no, and I'm like and working on like, it. Oh, we're really sorry about this. Really? We, 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 we are really sorry about this. And every time I just go look at it, I'm like, hey, Quentin, why don't you fucking edit a show? <laughs> Dickhole. <laughs> why, why don't you help me out here, buddy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I felt good to get that off my chest. <laughs> Uh, so if you'd like to be a co-host of the Two Enthusiasts podcast, <laughs> send your resume to. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I do think by the time that this podcast out, we should see Governor Jerry Brown sign into law the first official codification of lane splitting in, in the United States, which is kind of a big deal. And, not- and mainly because it might give some of these laws that are being trying to be put on the books in other states a little bit of traction. Well, like- that's the hope. That's the hope. You know, this is I think this is gonna be a state by state battle. And I hopefully California California is the easiest one to win because it's already legal there. It's just not in the California vehicle code. So that's that's basically this this bill, it's A B fifty one. It got shot down last year and they modified it from from having language that mirrored the study from UC Berkeley, which is basically 15 mile an hour speed delta up to 55 miles an hour in total velocity is shown to be just as safe as riding a motorcycle is on the highway anyways. Um, so they got rid of all that language, which I don't like, but the, the, the law now basically just says lane splitting is legal and government entities like California highway patrol, the CHP should be allowed to come up with guidelines and teach it in safety courses, Yep, which is good. I'm not stoked on some of it but overall i think it's good and hopefully that will allow states like oregon states like nevada and washington yeah, washington texas new york all these other states that north are, dakota south dakota <laughs> wyoming you wanna, virginia you yeah go every freaking state everywhere should be absolutely hopefully that'll at least get the ball rolling where we can find uh another state to, to get it legalized and and just keep the momentum going because that's truthfully that's how most 
um, social issue changes happen is, is at a state level. Would you call this a social issue? For motorcyclists, yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's kind of a transportation issue. I guess social. I not, a, not a socialist issue, a social issue. <laughs> it is socialist but, to no, some but people. This is, how, this is how gay marriage got passed. This sure. is how the civil rights movement got started. You know, pick, pick an issue like that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it just. I'm not saying that lane splitting is on the same level of those. Yeah, but I that, guess that's why for that's me it thing. doesn't seem like even close at all. But I, I, I know what you mean. For a certain group, it is. I, yeah, it's just that doesn't even hold a candle to any civil rights and or gay marriage as far as importance, right? Congratulations, women! You can now vote. <laughs> but can you lane split? <laughs> Can't we stuff that into the bill somewhere? That's all the newsy stuff I got. We did get a um, a reader asking about, uh, or asking us, I should say, to explain what it means to have a cross-plane crankshaft. Well, were you going to play it? No, because I don't think it's actually... So So our friend Kyle, the, the Wonderlich... Oh, yes. Uh, gentleman sent us another uh, message with, with several questions in, but I don't actually think the crankshaft thing is in the audio, so we'll just... Okay. Tackle the audio afterwards. All right. So, what does it mean to have a cross-plane crankshaft? If because this came up because I don't think we, and this is this is to our detriment, we didn't explain this when we did the FC10 show, and we probably should have. Okay. Because the FC10 it has a crossplane. It seems like we've already shaft. explained this, but maybe it's because I've had to explain this so many times to people because it is a very strange thing. Right. It's, well, I wouldn't say it's strange, but it's unique. Yeah, it's unique. Uh, yeah, sure. So, Agre- it's, agree it's, to disagree. I don't disagree. I'm just like, it's just a, You're it's, a, it's a strange topic. It's a very technical topic. So I like technical. Topics. Yeah, so do I. All right. So while you were going to, you were going to go for it and you were over there watching videos and preparing yourself. So you did the pregame. Why don't you try and explain? All right. I'll give it, I'll give it a shot and you tell me when I get it wrong. Okay. So I guess the, the best place to start out with. So, so my R1, in fact, I was almost going to get downstairs and work on it today before you showed up. <laughs> Whatever. Right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah. Uh. So I have a 2004 R1, which I only mention because the next generation of R1 has this cross-plane crankshaft. Well, mm, one more one more yeah, generation after. another generation. Yeah, the sure. 2007 model. Yeah. Yep. 2009 cross-plane crankshaft came out. So 2004, my R1 has a flat-plane crankshaft, which means you could lay the crankshaft on a table and it would lay flat. The crank pins are 180 degrees from each other. So opposite ends. I only say it, well, I say it that way because in juxtaposition, the cross plane crankshaft is exactly as it sounds. It's not in a singular plane. The planes are crossed. So if you looked at it from the side view, you would see like a cross. You see like a little plus sign. Because this is the crank pins, the plane of the crank pins where the rods are attached to the crank. The crank pins are 90 degrees from each other instead of 180 degrees. And they go, you know, so you have one at like 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock. So I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I'm not quite sure which pin is at noon, yeah, 3, sure. 6, 9. But that's the idea that if you're looking at a clock face, it'd be every... This is for inline four-cylinder engines. So the universal Japanese motorcycle, UJM for many years, was a four-cylinder inline. From the, from the time that Honda came out with a single overhead cam 750... Uh, late 60s early 70s on it it became the the rigueur engine to build for all sizes from 400 600 1000 750 whatever 
that's why it's kind of a critical thing because for the longest time they just had flat plane crank. They all cranks were the same up until uh, MotoGP. So I can't remember which was the first time we heard a cross plane sound from a MotoGP engine, and I would say it was probably. Rossi on a Yamaha. It's around that time, yeah, because yeah, it was the Yamaha YZRM1, and I want to say it was around 2007. I think that's why I was getting mixed up with my my generations on the R1s because sure. it obviously came out before. Yeah, it, it came was, into it the had, production it had model. Proved itself heavily in MotoGP before they brought it to to the R1 to the street bike engine. So m- all these engines the same. When the first there's uh, the 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 pistons work like this. On so number one would be let's call it down. Number two and number three would be up and number four would be down. And it's a four cycle engine. So the f- number one would go up and it would fire. And then possibly the next rotation, it would be number three. And then the next rotation would be number two. And then it would be the next rotation would be number four. And in between all that, the other ones are going through overlap instead of top. They would be instead of top dead center compression, they'd be top dead center overlap. Because uh, it's suck, squeeze, bang, blow. Suck in the intake charge, squeeze it, ex- bang it out, and then exhaust it. So the, the, the bang would pushes the piston down, and it's not really a bang. It is rapid oxidization. So the rapid oxidization, which is basically a controlled uh, explosion, but a very controlled explosion, pushes the piston down, and then the, those gases are exhausted. So suck in. Squeeze it, bang it, blow it. Suck, squeeze, bang, blow. That's the best way to explain it. So that's happening on each one of these things. But number one and number three. Oh boy, over the over the the sound waves. This is a tough one. It's a tough one to yeah, do. This sure. is this is testing your radio skills. No, I know. So, but it, it's happening. If you looked at this as a sine wave, if you looked at this as dots spaced out from each other, it would be one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four perfectly spaced every single time, even. It's an quote-unquote even firing order. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, right? So even even the cadence of one, two, three, four, and then stopping and one, two, it's just, it's just one, 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 right? And you rev it up and it stays in that. Whereas a cross plank is, it's it, the cadence <laughs> would be different. It would be one, two, three, four, and then one, two, three, four, right? That's very strange. Desma Sedici, it's a V4. So, so something that I think so this is this is maybe a uh, too high level question. The cross plane doesn't necessarily dictate the firing order. No. It's a different it, it could be a twingle. Uh sorry. You could if you had the camshafts ground to the way you if you had the camshafts ground to do it, you could have 1 and 4 because they are the ones going up on the same plane, if you will. This is on a this is on, on a flat a, in plane. Inline four, flat yeah. plane, normal one. Right. You could time the engine to where they would go bang, and both of them would go up and down at the same time, and then um, two and three would when they came up, they would bang. Right. Yeah. So this is this would be for, to put it in to more layman terms, the difference between a big banging engine versus a screamer engine, yes. with the asterisks that. Big bang is kind of a big bang is kind of a nebulous thing and can mean a couple different yeah. ways of firing the pistons. But yeah. but the way you're saying is one and four firing at the same time and then two and three fire at the same time and then one and f- and then they go through their sure whatever cycles and then one and four two and three versus one two three four one two three four one two yeah. three four. So 
the cross plane doesn't necessarily change that per se. It, it doesn't a little bit because because of the nine degree pins. You can yeah. never have two pistons no. top dead center at the same time. Sure. But what it does do is it keeps the angular momentum of the crankshaft even through the firing order because you always yes. have uh, 90 degree separation between the crank pins during a piston firing. And that is a, a dynamic that I'm not even going to try and get into. I would love to have a, a, a proper degree engineer to explain that, but that's exactly right. And then that momentum, it could be, you know, priceless. And there's a, so there's a, a reason why Formula One engines are a very specific way. There was a point in time with the V10 Formula One engines, they had a strange V instead of a 90 degree, which provides generally, depending on the amount of pistons you've got, if you've got a 90 degree V, you can attain um, perfect primary and secondary balance. Right. Uh, so again, depending on the amount of pistons. So a V6 doesn't quite work out as well as a V8, a V2, uh, and and I don't know what the V10, again, that, I, I wish and I that's could. That's on a four-stroke engine. Yeah, this is all four-stroke, but so the cause, V10. Because that changes once you get back to a V uh, two-stroke engine. Yeah, but not much, right? It's, doesn't it? No, I mean, no, it doesn't. No. I'd have to think about so, that. So well, that's, that's worth talking about because it is it can be confusing. So a V10 was like, a, they had a 72 and a half degree V for some reason. And I think the main reason was that at any given time, there was a power pulse happening, just helping keep the momentum of the crank always going to spin it up because they were going to 20, 22,000 RPM, something astronomical for, especially for a three, even a three liter V10, right? Well, we'll think about it this way, right? So on the flat plane crankshaft, when you have a cylinder top dead center, and that means the crankshaft makes like basically an eye if you're looking at it from the side. There's nothing there. You're you're relying on the momentum of the crankshaft and it's and it's inertia spinning and the flywheel and the flywheel to to turn it for that yeah, that power for impulse. the time that it's not turning. Yeah. Whereas on the on the cross plane, because you have the the ninety degree pins, you have a a conrod pushing at it at an angle to rotate that yeah. crankshaft a little bit better. Sure. You have a little bit more purchase on it, and and to maybe truncate this this explanation down the reality is for the rider that you get better well there's how do you describe it i mean you get Torque a better reaction you get thrust. a better yeah you get a better thrust reaction you get a better throttle feel when you're getting on the gas but also because of the way the power pulses are working and the way the the firing order then has to be separated with the 90 degree pins you're also getting better rear wheel grip because of the way the the power is breaking the tire loose and then the lack of power letting the tire Gain Recover. traction back in, and we're talking fractions of seconds, milliseconds of movement of it breaking loose and catching and breaking loose and crashing. It's like that's why some people like to say that the V twins have better drivability out of turns reason. because there's there's a big delay between the power pulses, which lets the tire hook back up to the and asphalt and it recovers. Sure. So that that brings me to V twins because we have to. You can't talk about the cross plane without talking about other engine configurations. And when you talked about Screamer or Big Bang, there were two different engine configurations that we talked about with that. And that would be the V4s of the uh, Honda VF or R, R, um, RVF series in the in the 80s when they started making V4s. And then the, the NSR, um, 
uh, series, uh, which are 500, 250. Well, the, the V4s were 500s. So the, um, the crank pins on a V4, you couldn't really call it cross plane or flat plane because of the, because the way the it's crank, a V4. It's a V. Yeah. So There's a V to, there. They're not, the, right. the cylinder heads aren't in line with each but other. The crank pin, frankly, the, the, the pin that is holding the number one and number two cylinders for better, like it's, this isn't the way this works in a V4 engine. So one, two, three, and four are pretty difficult to determine. It's kind of confusing, hard to explain on the radio, but we'll just say there's a shared rod. There's two rods on one crank pin next to each other. And then there's two rods on another crank pin. Uh, on a big bang engine, uh, it's going to confuse me which one it is. B- both the both sets of the rods would be on the same spot, and it would fire one. And I'm and I'm, I'm showing this to <laughs> you. Look to, like a little T Rex with yeah, your fingers. Yeah, I'm showing this to, <laughs> to to Jensen with my fingers. So uh, it would go one, two, three, four, one, and it would be even. Whereas if the if the spacing was a uh, uh, 180 out from each other, so there would be the rods um, on say the one two bank are up, and then the rods on the three four bank are down. Instead of all of them basically approaching the same point, at, you know, going up and down at the same time, uh, they would be uh, spaced differently. And I don't remember, I don't know which one is which because you'd have to look you'd have to uh, time that out with a 360 degree wheel of which one was going top dead center compression, which one was firing top dead center compression next, which one was on overlap. And you'd have to map that out. But that screamer would be the even firing and the big bane would be the odd. Uh, so that was the, that's where you heard of this most. And that was when, uh, like, uh, McDuin was known for going from a screamer to big bang or vice versa. And the, the note of the engine changing and everybody freaking out because it was a, it's a difference. It was, and it was a notable change in how the bike performed and it worked really well. And then he went back to the screamer or went back to the big bang. I can't remember which one it was and was like fingers out, like screw you. I can ride this thing, whichever way it doesn't matter. And I would be interested to find out or go do a little research to figure out what he did. And then what did Rossi end up on? Right. Cause it, it was a little harder to tell with the two stroke, they had more of a drone and it's hard to explain it, but on a two stroke, because they're just ringing ding, ding, ding. And they just sound like they're screaming all the time. It was tough to tell the difference. Whereas on the V4 four stroke, the RVFs, the RC 30, the RC 45, that was a definitely a notable drone. And you can tell the difference. Well, even Ducati on the Desmond Sidici played around with screamer well, and big bang yeah, configurations. But yeah, the Desmond Sidici RR street bike, those weren't at the same time either they weren't oh sorry the the uh, the two crank pins weren't up and down at the same time or spaced 180 degrees apart they were 70 degrees apart so a, a desma sedici if you look at the uh the 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 fire pattern it's actually eerily similar to the cross plane uh yamaha so it'd be like one two three four one two three four right. not not one two three <laughs> and that, and this, well, yeah, and that gets back to this idea of like, you, you know, for, for hooking up the rear tire, the, the optimal firing seems to be like a big fire and then kind of trailing that out with two little fires. So you get like two sure. quick successions followed by two slower follow ups. And meanwhile, putting it in a position where that momentum is always happening so that right. the engine is working if, as efficiently as possible within those dynamics. Uh, V-twin 
uh, again, a V-twin, a normal 90-degree V-twin, both, in fact, I don't know of any other way, you've got the rods next to each other, um, and they're going up and down at the same time. The pistons are essentially going up and down almost exactly at the same moment, but the, the number one piston, the horizontal or, or vertical, would be, will fire while the other one's on overlap, and then the other one will fire. And then there's something called twingling, which you would do in flat track racing mostly, where they'd make it so that when those rods were both approaching, when the pistons were both approaching the top, both were firing on that same revolution. And that would turn it into essentially a big single, right. which is a, a strange thing. And it induces different dynamics of... of uh, I'd imagine that'd be something that eventually just shakes itself apart. Well, but that's, that's a weird part of it. So that would be the interesting thing to get somebody that's better at explaining... Uh, vibrations like um, yeah because it, it's still going up and down at the same all that that whole thing is being damped by the by the crank weights and by the flywheel and right so it's still a 90 degree v-twin you're spinning the same mass it's just not firing at the same time that's a weird thing for most people to get their head around is that what is causing vibration isn't the combustion necessarily is it part of it? Oh my God, it's so confusing and, and very difficult to, to explain. And that's why I would be, I, well, I think yeah. we might have to do a little, I might have to do, give my buddy Tony Wilcox, who was the guy in charge of all of the uh, rotating or reciprocating masses in the SIS engines. I'm going to have to call him yet again and <laughs> say, hey man, I, I need a quick, <laughs> I need a quick refresher because he did this with me back in the SIS days because we had an engine. It was a four cylinder and this is worth talking about. A four cylinder in line with two cranks counter-rotating against each other, uh, ostensibly <laughs> to cancel yeah. out the the momentum of each one or to cancel out the centripetal Angular force, Angular right? Yeah. So with that, that allowed, we basically had two parallel twins. Yeah. Okay. And we we changed up the firing order one time. There were two parallel twins, 15 degree V angle, so just slightly off. And someone, and someone, I think mentioned this on Facebook the other day. If it was like a VR six, yeah, which it isn't. Well, kind of is though, because because the VR six is a, it's again it's that narrow yeah, head it's design, a narrow, narrow V, and it's a single cylinder head. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but obviously not a six yeah, cylinder. Yeah, it's, and that's hard to explain that one. It's really hard to explain that. But no, it's similar, and I think that was a fifteen degree V as well. Something like very that. very yeah. close, but it, it 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 wasn't. So this one's it's still tighter. It had a single intake cam running across the top of it and then two exhaust cams running off of the intake cam. And and that's that's a mind bender for most people to it, again, you'd have to see it to believe it. A lot, a lot going so on. There. So what, yeah. what that did was made it actually surprisingly easy to change the firing order. Um, so we did that where it was a normal four cylinder inline for the first iteration of its life where the number one would be down, the number two and number three would be up, and the number four would be down. Just because the cranks were rotating counter of each other doesn't mean that they, the, the all the pistons were up and going up and down at the same time, right? right? So in order to make the firing order fairly even, that's how it worked. It had a strange sound to it because they were a little bit off. I was going to say, that's got to be really, really hard to get that timing just right. Oh, dude. You should have seen the tools we had to use to get the cranks to line up and to get the fucking cams. Oh, my God. An engine build on one of those was epic. It was epic. I, I, I can't stress it enough. It was one of the most difficult things 
uh, anyway, no, I don't want to get another. We could go down that rabbit hole. But so, yes, it was difficult to time it. Extremely fucking difficult to time it. But we would get it. And then one time we, we were having issues at some point. We were trying different firing. We said, we're going to try this firing order. One engineer was like, there's no way we can do that. And the machinist about had kittens, full litter six. When we said, hey, we're going to cut one of these camshafts apart and we're going to reclock. Uh, we're going to reclock the center section and bolt it back together so that you can, we're going to do this. But it actually made it remarkably easy because the cam, the, um, the, the exhaust cams were completely separate. So you could put them wherever. It was just the intake cam that we had to adjust. Whereas if you tried to do this on an inline four-cylinder Japanese bike, um, sorry, any inline four, any inline four-cylinder that was just standard, you would have to do quite a bit of reclocking a bunch of lobes on uh, on a cam because you only have two cams and they both had to be changed. So we were able to do this with a single cut or well, it wasn't that easy, but it, we were able to do it. And basically we turned it to where the cranks were looked, uh, it was one was up, two was down, three was up, four was down, right? So that firing order was weird and it sounded weird and it worked the same and it didn't vibrate any more or any less. It just, it did vibrate differently, but I don't, I wouldn't say that the frequency was that different. It, it didn't make any change in power, but we were, we were pretty far behind the eight ball on that anyway. We were just, there were some shots in the dark we were trying to take to figure out whether we could get it to, to behave differently on the dyno. Um, and because because there is differences in power, not only in delivery but also yeah. in peak figure between like yeah. a, a true screamer and a true big. A bang. little bit, right? Yeah. Sub- subtleties, and I can't remember exactly, but that that wouldn't be a good example because it would be very. We were we were having all kinds of other issues, so it wasn't like the dyno runs were consistent enough to where we had. Uh, you know, a, a, a suite of dyno runs on the, in one way that were all good and step tests and, and power pulls that were all consistent because every time we ran it, it would be a, another failure mode upon another failure mode upon another failure mode. So it was too difficult to get that. But if we were doing this, say, with a, a cross plane and inline four, well, it's obvious. It's obvious that Yamaha has it right. They've got now multiple MotoGP World Championships with that engine and multiple... Um, national championships with the crossplane and, and the R1. Uh, they haven't participated in World Superbike in a long time, so Not we since don't. Ben Spees. We well, don't. they're in Superbike now. But sure, but Ben Spees rocked the house, and that was 2009, wasn't it? Yeah. First year of the crossplane, yeah. and yeah. ate them alive with that bike. I mean, yeah, a lot of that was Ben Spees. Well, a lot of that too was budget. Fair uh, enough. Like, oh, what was I thinking? I'm trying to remember the numbers, how many engines they went through. It was the like, Lagarda team. It was like 60 engines a season or 80 um, engines a season or something. I, silly I guarantee like that. it wasn't that far off from Ducati. Well, and I'm, no, just, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just, just trying to impart like there was a massive budget behind all that. Well, it to did be able well. to have a budget for 80 engines means you have a budget for a lot of other things as well that you're just doing craziness. With. Sure. But you wouldn't be able to do it if the engine sucked. That bad engine proved itself right there because that was a big, heavy ponderous bike i i've ridden a couple of those older i hate them i don't like the way they feel they're they're big and nasty and i don't know but the engine works really well obviously so there's that that proves the point that that it's a great technology and it's amazing that they came up with it the one thing that we found when we first heard about it and this was the just right at the end of the sis 
time uh, when Tony, this again, this engineer I talked about earlier, he started doing some calculations on what it would take, and he speculated, hey, that in order for them to do that with that crank, they would have to have you know larger uh, area between the number one and number two uh, pistons and uh, for the main bearing because there would be more uh, like a, a significant amount more load there, and then between the number three and number four that there would be differences in width of the main bearings. And sure enough, that was the case. So it's interesting that, you know, you could just calculate it out. Okay, what are, if, if you're smart enough and you understand the dynamics enough and you can figure out, okay, the, in order for this to happen, what needs to, what needs to be different? You Could you just do this to a Kawasaki or whatever? And I think Attack tried to do it when they did their, they did a brief, try with a MotoGP when it was, what was that class that was like? The CRT. The, the CRT. So I think Attack and tried they, to do this. Yeah, because they raced at, I'm trying to think if they raced in Indy. Indy? No, because they were, I know they were at Laguna. I'm trying to remember if they were at Indy or not, because Laguna, they didn't qualify. It was actually really embarrassing. They had a lot of issues with the bike. and was they that had a lot Blake of, Young? Yeah, that sounds right. I yeah. think so. And, but that bike was, I, I never heard it. I don't remember it, but I think it had... That sounds right. The An attempt plane. at a cross-plane yeah. crank, and it it didn't work because the engine hadn't been designed around that period. Right. right. So nobody had done the calculations. They just said, we're going to make a crank and cams that mimic this, and you know it's going to give us the power pulses we need. Whoop-de-doo. No, it didn't, didn't work. Uh, that, that, again, is complete hearsay. I'm not sure about it, but I think that was one of the things. No, that, that, that sounds right, because I remember when I read that project, it was like every buzzword at the time that you could throw out, like, Okay, you know, it sounds all great on paper, but sometimes like reinventing the wheel is a bigger an, undertaking than you need to it, be. And it was an amazing effort, and I'm glad that they tried, but sure, not yeah. surprised that it wasn't very successful. And the same goes, unfortunately, for the Moto Sys engine. It was that, but that's like 20 levels higher of complexity and strangeness. So, uh, but, but bottom line is that's a big deal, big enough to where people uh, for a long time have tried to, to sort out what engine. And how do we make and what suits the best? Like flat track right now, well, flat track for 40 years, 50 years has been Harley Davidson, 45 degree V twin with not twingled. I'm pretty sure they'd have a normal firing order, but that's been the thing. That what that's what you beat. Honda ended up making an engine uh, that mimicked that because it worked so well, and they only did it for so long in the 80s, and they did that. Boom. Now what's winning? A Kawasaki parallel twin with I think a 270 degree crank. So when we want to talk about cross plane, we could talk parallel twin. You know how much I hate parallel twins, but the ones that are rad are the ones that have a 270 degree crank, and when you hear Which them, they sound very similar to a Ducati V-Twin. Because it's the same. It's a very similar, where yeah. if you look at the power pulse, the boom, to the boom, to the boom, or boom, boom, and then space, boom, boom, right? Whatever that is, it's it's it allows that time for recovery, and it works really well. And I don't think they're twingling, because you could do that. Parallel twin, you could have both pistons come up and down at the same time. Now, that would be a gnarly shaking thing, right? That would be paint shaker horrible which they did back in the day i think bsa's triumphs people would make frankly as ship standard they would have the the both pistons going up and down at the same time just firing opposite from each other just like we were talking about with the four cylinder so uh number one piston go up and fire the other one's on overlap then right so it sounds even but you still got all the masses going up and down at the same time so they shake like seizure style it's horrible all right yeah it's a weird one and they still shake 
if they're 90 degrees away from each other. They right. still... because they're be, not... Because well, it, it's a rocking couple. Yeah, they're not in primary balance. No. Uh, whereas the 270 degree with a balance shaft, it's okay. It works all right, obviously, because Yamaha has been doing it. TDMs, the Super Tenere, all the FZ... Uh, what is it? Nine or seven, the seven... The There's FC a lot of great engines with those. Yeah. The, the Kawasaki, I believe, is, but I'm not 100% sure. So the 650? Yeah. Yeah, it's a parallel twin. Yeah, but is it a 270-degree crank? I believe it is. And if it is, that's what's working. And right now, Kawi is winning a lot of, especially the miles with their the flat track engine. I don't know if it's Kawi, but it's it's Kawi, I'm sure, is pushing. Well, I think it's interesting you mentioned that because that's the same bike that's basically dominating the... Isle of Man TT's lightweight TT class. Yeah, sure. So I don't know if there's something that in that engine design that lends itself to being very good for for tuning, or if it's just that's what the rule structure is favoring, or if Kawasaki's just figured out a package to be like, hey guys, like you know, if you do this, a little of that, it's good to go. Sure. Well, SV stopped being developed, right? The SV was probably what they the the main for that class, especially in the Isle of Man. Uh, the SV650 for the longest time. But once the Cowie came out and they started developing a little bit better, right? I'm I'd actually, like to see one of those Isle Man bikes because I guarantee you it's not like an out-of-the-box whatever. What was that bike? An ER6 or something? Yeah, over there. It's the ER6N. Yeah, I, I guarantee you those are probably bespoke chassis or extremely heaven modified. You know, the the guy that, that really actually is putting them on the map is Ryan Farquhar. And um, he's building, or at least was the case when that class first started out. I don't think it's so much the case now, but he was basically like, if you didn't have one of his bikes, you just weren't going to win. Hmm. Uh, Cause he just knew how to whisper a little bit more power into them and a little bit more reliability. But yeah, very interesting, very interesting class. In fact, I was just thinking like, I don't know why the SV650 isn't running in that class now, other than maybe Suzuki. Oh, like I said, really the development stopped and, and the, the last generation SV, the one with the angular frames, those things were crank breaking bad deals, whereas the earlier ones you could build and get more power out of them more reliably. And it took a while for the the newer ones to get. By that time, I think most people started saying, "Well, screw that. I might as well just get this Cowie." And they're they're probably plentiful. That's my guess. But it'd be interesting to find out because again, that's something that's kind of unique to the Isle of Man and that that class structure. Well, the Isle of Man and, and the Isle of Man's a weird one too. Like I always caution people. In fact, I think we had someone on the site the other day that was singing the praises of Honda because of the performances that they do at the Isle of Man and to which I replied, well, you know, BMW's kind of been kicking the last, their yeah. ass the last couple of years. Yeah. But, you know, you're right. Historically, the last decade or so, it's been a Honda show. Large part that, of that is John McGinnis, but that's also like the weirdness of the Isle of Man where so much of that is rider knowledge and team preparation and extraneous factors because those bikes are so far out of spec of what you would see rolling down a street. They, they look like they they are but they're very specially built bikes and that's when the big deal was when um bruce ancy raced the rc213 vs this year mm-hmm. and there's a lot of spec like oh it's not fair it's a motor gp bike for the street and it's gonna blow everyone away it's like well it's a bike that's had zero development to be a road racing bike and you can't just uncrate it put it on the tt course inspect uh records to drop like it takes a lot of development time to get the ride height right to get the clearances right to get that suspension developed i mean there's there's specialty you're better off starting with a road bike as it is because you're on roads right so the street bike aspect of it keeping them springing them very uniquely and damping them it's not like you can just put a, a, a short circuit 
uh, no. closed circuit setup on a no, road no. bike at yeah. all. There's there's guys that are making their living being suspension specialists for TT and road ra- Irish road racing because it's just its own thing. And the stuff that they do, if you tried to apply it to you know your track bike and go out on the track, it would not work. It would not make sense because it's just it's a different creature. I mean, look at look at all the spectacle videos that we see from the TT. They're they're jumping, they're wheeling, they're yeah. all over the place. They're getting squirrely because it's not a perfect race course. It's it's public roads for Christ's sake. So public roads that are ancient and gnarly. well, they 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 pave those things pretty quick. The TT, I mean, the Alamand puts a lot of money into its TT course infrastructure for they do a several reasons. One. If you keep improving the road conditions, start taking out some bumps, some jumps, some turns, straighten, straighten things out, uh, lap records happen more often. Ah, of course. But also, too, just because they know it's their bread and butter, um, there's some safety stuff that they do, and it's just it's just smart money, really. It's, it's government money well spent. Like, hey, we're going to invest a million dollars in road infrastructure upgrades this year, and we're going to have, you know, a billion dollars in TT spectators showing up, you know, for the next race. I don't know. Those numbers, obviously, yeah, are just out sure. of thin air, but... All right. Well, as it pertains to to cranks, there's where you're at as far as cross plane, and then because you can't have the conversation with about just the inline four without talking about the other ones, and even a single. You think about what a feeling of a of a single is compared to a twin, compared to a a four cylinder. So those those that ride around on a singles, or like say the CBR two fifty R, why is that slower? or less powerful than a Ninja 250, which is a twin, a parallel twin. It's like it's one piston doing a lot of work. When you spread that load out, you can you can achieve higher revs because it has a shorter stroke um, and a higher RPM potential out of the same CC size. Right, and that, so that's, that confuses people as well. You said something really important there. It has a higher RPM potential. The easiest way to make more power is to spin it quicker. Well, let's, let's, not just the easiest. You got to think about it like this. There are, for every any given displacement, the only way to make more power is to rev it, period, right? So if you're, you can play with a bunch of factors with a displacement, say with a single, and it's 250 cc's, yeah, there's really not much you can do other than rev the crap out of it, right? That That is the only way to make power. You either have to increase displacement or rev it, period. Because right? everything else you'd be talking about would be changing the... The efficiency of the combustion yeah. chamber. Or or friction loss down to the right. rear wheel. You're not creating any more power without increasing the CC size. Or changing fuel. Or revving it. If fuel's constant. Yeah, that's, because, but that's a given. That's a constant. That's right. A that's, th- that's, that's just a basic thermodynamics thing. There's only so much potential energy that can be extracted from however much gasoline is being put into that cylinder head. And everything else is about maximizing the efficiency of that extraction going from potential energy to kinetic energy yeah it took me a while when one of the again one of the sys engineers and i were having a discussion about torque what could torque be out of a thousand cc uh four cylinder or a thousand cc twin or a thousand cc anything and his uh him explaining to me that the that there's only so much torque that could be made it's the horsepower that can change the torque, the the number. Once you do a basic calculation of size and uh, efficiency for the engine, that's going to be that. And right? we should explain horsepower is a number derived from, from torque. torque yeah. So you have your torque curve, and like you said, there's only so much torque. Eventually, you're going to hit 
peak efficiency on torque and that's just how much that engine's going to make yep period but because horsepower is a function of torque and it's a function of torque times the engine rotational speed the rpm that's how you start making more power and that's why we're saying the easiest way to make more power is just to spin it faster because that's all you have in some it's ways. It's the only way. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's the only way. And then a lot of people are like, wait, wait, wait. No, I can I can do this and do that. And then I yeah, but you're not increasing power. If you're if you're doing anything from the combustion chamber back, it is frictional. It is uh Or you it, start getting into like forced induction and weird things like sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. But that we're we're again talking about same with like fuel. Yes, that is a factor. Sure, you can create more power at the in the combustion chamber with fuel, no doubt. But all things being the same, is what I'm saying. Of course, you're tweaking cam timing and you're tweaking uh, ignition timing, and right. There's so many different things you can do to change that and play play with it. But even that, a cam timing change usually moves the power around more than creating right. it. Cam lift, cam profile that will that will affect it. Oh, it's it's just oh, talk about the rabbit hole of performance stuff. It's there's so much to, to well just talk just about. to just to ground it in a little bit more reality. We talked about this in the FC10 show because the FC10 makes 160 horsepower out of the same more or less the same engine block as the R1. A lot of that difference with the R1 making obviously 200 horsepower, and a lot of that difference in power is because of the cam timing bringing the power down from. I'm trying to think what the red line is on an R1, but you know all the power is probably above 11,000 RPMs and bringing it. In all the way down, bring that torque profile all the way down to 6,000 to 8,000. I think peak torque is 9,000 RPMs. And then, but because it's at a lower engine speed or lower RPM, it's 160 horsepower instead of 200 because of the way the math works. And then obviously there's sure. some little minor other changes that are affecting power. But most of that is where the peak torque is being made in the RPM band. And that could be a, a similar conversation had about uh, with the 1299 Ducati relative to the 1199. A lot of people are like, why would I want more CCs? Thir 1300 CCs, wh why do I need this? What, what is the benefit? Well, the benefit is that that torque curve is, is significantly different and you're getting back a lot of the low end, the more torque happening earlier on the rev range where you don't have to rev it out to get what you're requesting. So um, actually a 1299, bizarrely, is easier to ride, uh, more simple to ride than a, uh, an 1199 because you don't have to rev it as much. It'll just go and you can you can short shift through the tranny a lot easier. So it's a better street bike and frankly, an easier bike to ride on the track because you don't have to spin the crap out of it, even though they'll claim uh, peak horsepower, because frankly, that's what sells bikes is, is, you know, cock waving dyno runs. Look at, look at me and look at my phallic representation and how much faster I can go to you when that really isn't it. It's, it's how meaty is your torque curve? How big is that power band below, um, b below a normal RPM for a 1199, right? So 11,000 RPM engine and you have to rev the crap out of it. It's scary. Right, and it and it can be intimidating to ride. Whereas you got something to brat, but that's why it's easy to ride twins. People talk about it all the time. That's why I love them. I'm lazy. I love twins because of that. You just kind of brat and go. You don't have to spend a lot of time rowing through the gearbox. You just put it in a gear and go. And that's a beautiful thing. So that's one way of, of looking at it. Question: Have you ever seen two dinos race each other down a racetrack? Yeah. Right. That's all. That was. What, I forget who the hell. It's Ronnie. Yeah, that was Ronnie. All right, sure. Yeah, I've never seen two dinos race each other down the front straightaway, right? And that's that's such a big deal. I, just, I wish, oh, 
There's so many people that I wish would listen to that because it's so tempting to just do nothing but post up your dyno numbers and show that curve going all the way to the top, all the way to this peak number of 195. And yet it's unrideable because the, uh, the torque curve sucks. And there's a big hole in it and right in the middle because you've fucked with the cam timing so badly. And yeah, maybe you put a hole in it. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting what what really works and what doesn't. And you know a lot of people that build the shit out of engines and show their dyno numbers and flow it out there and you get to the racetrack, especially in club racing, and for some reason, their engines never do very well. Their, their racers never quite there all the time, never consistently. They might get a racer every once in a while that can ride around their shitty engine, but <laughs> generally it doesn't work and we see it, especially locally here in Omra. You got these big, Ah. You're thinking of someone in particular, I can tell. Yeah, no doubt. And you used to get the big egos and they just go out there. It's fucking awful. Where somebody could just build a simple, reliable engine and there's another tuner, um, there's a there's a, a, a gentleman that had been working. Um, oh my gosh, I am forgetting his name. That is killing me. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, most, most of the listeners don't want to care, but there was one dude, very subdued, uh, laid back guy that doesn't really you know, puff his chest up very much. He just would build reliable, solid engines. And the, and the class champion for like nine or 10 years, a guy named Alan Schmidt would just wipe people up with a bike that was almost stock. And he would, but he would always be there and it always work because it was, it was reliable and easy. When we were the Graves bikes, man, we spent, they spent so much time on the dyno, not going for peak numbers. Of course, the crew chiefs would all fight with each other. And, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't, outward it was just kind of whoever had that best number whether we're talking splitting hairs within a couple of horsepower on top of 178 right that it really doesn't matter that much but there was always bragging rights of, of course but the good crew chiefs knew that it wasn't that peak number they were looking for it was where is that number where is the torque figure and the horsepower figure at 6,000 rpm where the rider has to power out of the corner and when they request torque when they are at that point where they get traction, how good is it? Of course, it's it's important at the end of the front straightaway when you're about to go to threshold braking. You want to be able to out accelerate that 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 competitor uh, next to you for sure. But it doesn't matter if you can't get the drive out of the corner to yeah. out accelerate that person. The the drive out of the corner is way more important because if you're five miles an hour faster, let's say coming out of yep. uh, the 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 final turn onto the front straight, you're going to be. 15 miles Possibly. an hour faster Absolutely. at the end of it just because you've just that's it's an exponential thing and it leaves so many people dumbfounded they, they a lot again a lot in the club racing community dumbfounded because they saw that horsepower number on their on their super tuna's diner dyno and they think oh well that I've, i'm good i'm set i don't need to do any more work i'm fine and they get out there and get their ass kicked even though they might have better skills they're like how is that possible that that's bikes beating me it's happens all the time and i've been watching it for now 20 years and it's fascinating N and nobody seems to learn it can continues on with this i've got to get high horsepower got to get high horsepower it sucks well and it's almost one of those things where if you if you're not changing your riding style and you're not adapting what the rider is doing to meet what the engine has been designed to do because if you go and try and ride around on a racetrack within a bike whose power has been built, you know, close to the red line and try and do the same thing on a bike whose power has been built closer to the mid range. You know, if you don't change your style or if your style isn't equipped to keep the bike in that higher, uh, rev range, 
and, and use that power that's been that's being made up there, then there, there's no point to it. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And then sometimes it's a difference between a thousand cc rider and a 600 because there are people that are specialists. And on the 600, it is more important to get that peak number because, frankly, they're all the bikes are so equally uh, matched, and that to get the numbers, to get the horsepower numbers, you have to have a peaky high RPM engine no matter what. So it does matter to make 126 horsepower as opposed to 123 for sure on a 600. It, it, it does make that difference, but it, it better not have a hole in the bottom. It better be smooth and clean coming out. And frankly, a lot of that can be done with fueling and ignition timing instead of just creating a, a, a gnarly engine. But the, the really trick guys and girls and girls. Yeah. I'm thinking of Michelle. DeSalvo yeah. Everybody right would think yeah. immediately of Michelle DeSalvo, of course. Um, they can do that. They, they understand that and they can tune it and they can say, all right, what can I do to reduce friction? What can I do to reduce load, say, on a charging system? What can I do to, to make this thing rev quicker? Not just make the horsepower, but actually rev quicker. But sometimes that goes detrimental. Okay, well, the flywheel, we talked about flywheel earlier, keeping momentum in the engine. Um, I guess that's the best way to put it, right? Absolutely. Uh, uh, so that, though, can be detrimental. Too much, and it might not be good. Too little, and then that plays to slipper clutches. So the weight of a crankshaft relative to the weight of the rear wheel and how a slipper clutch works, that plays into it. That's, and that's corner entry. So sometimes, sometimes corner entry, threshold breaking into a corner and having a connection with the bike, which frankly has a lot to do with the rear wheel, uh, is more important than whatever advantage you might get from from a lightweight crank or a heavier crank or whatever uh, accelerating out of the front straight. So that, that's the beauty of this motorcycle thing is so many different complicated things weaving themselves in and you have to constantly massage it. That's what makes it such a challenge and it's not easy. None of this is easy and there's no... There's no recipe book that works. I've seen a hundred different recipes and it's like bike to bike, rider to rider. And the loose nut behind the bars is usually, unfortunately, the most difficult thing to tune. And you're trying to match that loose nut with your, the machine that you've created and then try and massage the machine to, to fit that loose nut behind the bars. So it's a great thing. You know what else is a great thing? Kickstands. Kickstands are great things. Yeah, they are, especially when they're up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, we, I think we're gonna have to continue this, this question from Kyle. Cause I think we went down the rabbit hole, but, it, but good conversation about crankshafts. Yeah. Sure. We got, we got, we got pretty cranky with it. <laughs> we did. So TBD on that one, Kyle, sorry about that. But, um, until next time, good talk. See you out there. Uh, sandwiches. sandwiches. You're making me hungry. Oh man, I got I got sandwich meat and bread in the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> We're well stocked. <laughs> um, my girlfriend's gonna murder me in my sleep. Yep. By the way, yeah, yep, big night. Just right through the heart. Oh no, that'd be a quick death. Probably just gonna start at my toes and work her way up. Just little little slices. You'll be the death of a thousand cuts or something like yeah, that. Something have like you ever that. heard of that? Yeah, I have heard of that. Yeah, I think that's a horrible way to go. Uh huh.